0: Okay, today we're tackling supposed proofs for evolution, similar design in living things, vestigial organs, transitional fossils, ape men, and a few more. We'll also answer some
1: of those what about questions about the age of the Earth, like distant starlight and radiometric dating, this week on Creation Magazine Live.
0: The audio podcast that you're about to hear features scientific evidence for biblical creation. For many more evidences for the accuracy of the Bible, visit our website creation.com. Welcome to Creation Magazine Live. I'm Richard Fangrad. And I'm Thomas Bailey. Today we'll address some
1: of the questions that some people feel are proofs for evolution and deep time.
0: And some of you might be thinking, why would we do that? What possible value does this next half hour of debunking evolution in deep time, what value does this have for Christianity and my personal walk with Jesus Christ? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> well, the topics we're
1: covering today are being used by evolutionists right now to lead people away from Christ. Yes. Church surveys repeatedly show large percentages of people, mostly young people, who grow up in Christian homes will leave the church by the time they're in their early 20s. Now, the good news is that interviews with university students who have a church background and were equipped to refute the skeptics' attacks on Scripture as they grew up, they they don't leave the church.
0: Yes. Here's a couple of conclusions. Number one is that there are actually logical, scientific refutations of evolution. That's number one. Number two, that learning about how and why evolution is wrong and that science supports Scripture is an effective faith-strengthening exercise that has long-term benefits. So that's why we're going to expose the faulty logic
1: and poor science behind these evidences for evolution and deep time in a way that your faith can be strengthened. That's the idea. Now Let's start with the vestigial organs. You'll find these in old church buildings, but most of them broke down years ago and they're no longer playable.
0: Very funny. (laughs) Actually, this refers to body parts that appear to have no function, like wings on an ostrich, the human appendix. At one time there were over a hundred of these in humans alone, and evolutionists claimed that they were leftovers or vestiges of evolution back when we were fish or amphibians or something else, but they lost their purpose as we evolved. They cite these as proof of evolution. But this is circular reasoning, because evolution was first
1: assumed before making this claim. Hmm. Also, no one can really say if an organ is useless. Wings on an ostrich aren't for flying, but they may be used for things like balance while running, mating rituals, or scaring off predators. Actually, most organs that were once labeled vestigial have since been found to have a purpose.
0: Yeah, The human appendix used to be considered unnecessary because it can be removed when it gets inflamed. As late as 1997, the Encyclopedia Britannica claimed, the appendix does not serve any useful purpose as a digestive organ in humans and it is believed to be gradually disappearing in the human species over evolutionary time. Meanwhile, a 1995 textbook read, The mucosa and
1: submucosa of the appendix are dominated by lymphoid nodules, and its primary function is as an organ of the lymphatic system. In other words, it's part of your immune system. A diseased (laughs) appendix can be removed because God designed several other organs that perform the same function.
0: So there's backups in place. That's right. Yeah. God's a pretty smart designer. Yes. (laughs) Then there's the coccyx, also known as the tailbone. Evolutionists have claimed that it was a leftover from a time when we had tails. But the tailbone has nothing to do with tails. The coccyx serves as an important anchor point for several muscles, tendons, and ligaments needed for things like childbirth and bladder control, not tails. Sounds pretty useful to me. (laughs) It's pretty useful. The whole vestigial organ idea actually hindered research because nobody wanted to study something that was considered useless. The same thing happened with so-called junk DNA. That was a term that became popular back in the 1960s. Studies back then suggested that less than 3% of
1: DNA codes for proteins, while the other 97% doesn't, and it was labeled junk. Circular reasoning again. Because its purpose hadn't yet been discovered, it was assumed to be leftovers from our evolutionary past.
0: Yeah, Except it isn't. (laughs) <laughs> New discoveries show that DNA that doesn't code for proteins serves many functions, like regulating the timing of protein production, for example. By 2012, the ENCODE project had found that at least 80% of the supposed junk DNA has a function. And the project's lead analysis coordinator, Ewan Bernie, said, "...it is likely that 80% will go to 100%. We don't really have any large chunks of redundant DNA." This metaphor of junk isn't that useful, he said.
1: <laughs> Many illnesses are linked to mutations in the non-protein coding DNA. And this has huge implications for health care costs and understanding disease mechanisms. The whole junk DNA diversion sabotaged medical research for over 40 years.
0: Yeah, okay, so much for junk DNA. What about this 99% myth? <laughs>
1: It was once thought that human and chimp DNA were 97 to 99% similar because we evolved from a common ancestor. But that was based on early research that only compared small parts of the genetic code. Since then, more thorough techniques show the similarity
0: is no more than 87%. But even if the difference was only 1%, that would amount to 30 million base pairs. That's about 10 books the size of the Bible difference between apes and humans. There hasn't been enough time for random mutations to cause that much change, even in the six to seven million years back to our supposed common ancestor. Another evolutionary fail.
1: A big evidence promoted by evolutionists is homology. Various animals have similar features like two eyes, a heart, four legs, etc. Evolutionists claim this proves that we have a common ancestor. But the other explanation for similarities is rarely discussed. Consider that the original Porsche and the Volkswagen Beetle cars had a lot of similar features air cooled four cylinder engine in the back, two doors, trunk in the front, etc.
0: Yeah, so does that mean they both evolved from ancestral cars? No, it (laughs) means they had a similar
1: design. They had the same designer. Of course. Who used some of the same features in both designs. Yeah. Of course, they have several differences as well, not just the price. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Uh, You may have seen diagrams like these in a textbook, showing similarities in the structure of a human arm and a frog's arm, or a wing of a bird and the flipper of a seal. What's the best explanation? Common ancestor or common designer?
1: Humans and frogs both have digits, or fingers and toes, but those digits form differently. Humans start with a spade-like structure, and the digits form as the material between them dissolves away. So material is removed. In frogs, the digits grow outwardly and independently from buds. Material is added.
0: So that means that these structures could not have evolved from a common ancestor. Evolutionists admit this because apparently it happens quite often. Mm. Uh, In 1894, embryologist Edmund Wilson wrote, It is a familiar fact that parts which are undoubtedly homologous Often differ widely in their mode of formation. So it was admitted back in the 1800s. Almost 100 years later, Professor Gunther Wagner wrote The disturbingly many and deep problems associated with any attempt to identify the biological basis of homology have been presented repeatedly, he says. So, how do evolutionists explain that? <laughs> it, they call it convergent evolution, meaning that similar features evolved independently in creatures not closely related on the evolutionary tree. In other words, the same
1: random chance processes happened at different times in different species for different reasons. Right. Doesn't it make more sense that a common designer used (laughs) similar features in different creatures? Of course. I mean, why wouldn't God use something like an arm
0: or two eyes more than once? Right. Yeah. If if living things were completely different from one another, we might conclude that there were many creators. Right, Point. similarities in living things is evidence for a single creator. Okay, next one. What about human embryos? Don't they go through evolutionary stages? Yeah, the idea was uh, popularized by Ernst Haeckel back in 1868. It's been called the biogenetic law. Embryonic recapitulation and ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Say what? <laughs> the human embryo retraces its evolutionary history by going through a fish stage, an amphibian stage, etc., until it eventually becomes human. Really, that's the idea. Where did they get that idea? Haeckel's drawings. Haeckel produced uh, a series of drawings of various embryos, including a fish and a chicken and a human, and so on. And you can see how similar they look here. Uh, the idea is they all started out the same and, and gradually diverge as they developed. It's just one problem. These drawings are frauds. Yep, it's fake news. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Shortly after they were published, other embryologists realized Haeckel had deliberately modified the drawings to make them look similar. This has been confirmed several times since then. Professor Keith Thompson, for example, wrote, Surely, biogenetic law is dead as a doornail. It was finally exercised from biology textbooks in the 50s. He says the 50s. As a topic of serious theoretical inquiry, it was extinct in the 20s, he said, way back in the 20s, and out of textbooks in the 50s.
1: Now, he said it was out of the textbooks, but as late as the 1990s, some textbooks were still using these drawings as evidence for evolution. It's still there. You might still see this idea circulating online, but it's
0: wrong. Yeah. In 1997, embryologist Michael Richardson published these pictures of the actual embryos. As you can see, Haeckel's drawings are almost nothing like the real thing. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, abortion clinics use this logic as a way to comfort their clients, mm-hmm. fooling them into thinking that the unborn child really wasn't human. Really? Yeah. But a, a human embryo is human. It, it's, 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 it has unique DNA from the very first cell. It's the same for a fish and a salamander and a, and a condor or whatever it might be. Each has DNA code for what it's designed to be.
1: So it's just like the Bible says in Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made."
0: And another evolution evidence bites the dust. Now, So far we've discussed vestigial organs, homology, and DNA. Let's move on. What about transitional fossils? Evolution
1: predicts there must have been billions of creatures that were transitions from one form of organism to another. If the fossils are a record of deep time, there should be millions of indisputable transitional fossils. In 1859, Charles Darwin wrote, The number of intermediate varieties which have formerly existed on the earth must be truly enormous. Why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full
0: of such intermediate links? All right. so Darwin saw the problem and believed that the fossil record had not yet been thoroughly explored, and it was only a matter of time before the transitions would be discovered. Since then, there have never been more than a few disputable candidates,
1: even though there are currently about a billion fossils in museums, and billions
0: more that have been examined. The so-called missing links are still missing. That's right. Stephen Jay Gould acknowledged this when he wrote, the absence... Of the fossil evidence for intermediary stages between major transitions in organic design, indeed, our inability, even in our imaginations, to construct functional intermediates, in many cases, has been a persistent and nagging problem for gradualistic accounts of evolution. Now, Gould still believed evolution. He was, he was one of two paleontologists who proposed something called punctuated equilibrium suggesting that transitions came and went so quickly that none were preserved as fossils.
1: Hmm. Seems
0: strange that there'd be so many fossils of fully formed creatures, but not the
1: in-betweens. It does. Here's yet another observation that's hard to fit with evolution and deep time, but it fits the biblical history. Right. Noah's flood is a great explanation for the fossil record.
0: Yes. uh, Most fossil animals are missing large percentages of their skeletons, so paleontologists have to speculate about what the creature looked like. And this happened in the early 1980s. Pachycetus was put forward as a transition between some sort of land mammal and whales. The first reconstruction of Pachycetus looked like this, but what was actually found was this. That's some imagination right
1: there. (laughs) Once more remains of Pachycetus were found, it looked like this. And the reconstruction now looks like this. Not transitional at all. Mind you, the
0: corrected version seldom gets as much publicity as the initial discovery. And that's the that's the problem. Yeah. Then there's Tiktaalik, same type of thing. Mm-hmm. Thought to be a 379-million-year-old fish with a fin, researchers thought was on its way to becoming a limb of a tetrapod, a four-legged animal that could walk on land. Though the back part of the fossil is missing, representations at the time looked like this. But further research suggested that because its fin wasn't connected to the main skeleton, Tiktaalik wouldn't have been able to support itself walking on land. Also, in 2010, tetrapod
1: footprints were discovered in Poland, dated by evolutionists at 397 million years old. That's 18 million years older than Tiktaalik. That makes Tiktaalik a little late to the party, mm-hmm. so not transitional.
0: Right. Yeah. Tiktaalik was another highly publicized evidence for evolution that, after more research has been done, it falls away. It happens over and over. But the public is left with the impression that there's all this evidence out there that supports evolution. You know, and, and by the way, we're summarizing these points very quickly here. We realize that. For more information, just search on some of these things at creation.com.
1: Then there are the ape men, also known as hominins. Same as before. They're based on fragmentary evidence, and further research and discoveries tend to show they're either human or ape.
0: Yeah, Neanderthal was once thought to be very ape-like, possibly looking something like this. The latest research shows that Neanderthal was actually human, capable of speech, creating art, using burial rituals. DNA studies show that they interbred with humans, so they weren't a different species. Neanderthal is now pictured more like this.
1: Homo erectus appears very similar to Homo sapiens, and a number of paleontologists believe it actually was human.
0: Yeah, Australopithecus afarensis, uh, best known by the specimen Lucy, was thought to be an ape who walked upright, an ape-man based on speculation about the hip bones and some human-like footprints found a thousand miles away and dated at 3.2 million years old. The evolutionary history says humans weren't around then, Mm -hmm. so the footprints must have been made by a creature like Lucy, an an ape that walked like a human. And and here's one of the early reconstructions of Lucy.
1: By the way, Lucy's feet were never
0: found. Yeah, wow. Uh, That's another story though. But again, further research indicates that Afarensis was most likely an extinct ape. Evolutionist
1: anatomist Charles Oxnard wrote, "...the various Australopithecines are indeed more different from both African apes and humans in most features than these latter are from each other." So they can't possibly be human ancestors. No.
0: no. And again, we're moving very quickly through some of these topics. If you or your friends or relatives struggle with some of these evolution evidences, or you've, heard, you've never heard the biblical perspective on them, go to creation.com. You'll see the other side of the story that normally doesn't get out into the public.
1: We've seen how various proofs for evolution fall short. But what about deep time? The age of the earth is vital to evolution because evolution goes slowly so it needs millions of years. It gets fun when you consider that evidence for a recent creation is actually evidence against evolution. Yeah. And there's lots of evidence for a recent creation.
0: Yeah, And we explored what the Bible says about the age of the earth and why we can't add millions of years to biblical history in episode 4 a, a few weeks ago. Now let's look at the evidence often used for deep time, radiometric dating. We'll start
1: with carbon-14 dating, which is used to date things that were once living. Mm-hmm. Carbon-14 forms in the atmosphere. It's radioactive, so it loses particles or decays over time. Carbon-12, the normal carbon, is found in all living things and doesn't decay. C14 gets absorbed by plants and animals through photosynthesis, and then when they die, then they obviously stop absorbing it.
0: Right, yeah. At that point, the amount of C fourteen in the dead tissue begins to decrease to the point where after about a hundred thousand years at most, it's undetectable to date a fossil. The amount of C14 and C12 is measured, and given the ratio uh, between the two and the decay rate of C14, the time since death is calculated. That's how it works. But various things can affect the ratio of C12 to C14 in the atmosphere, which then
1: affects the apparent age of a fossil. Things like the Industrial Revolution or, or the Earth's magnetic
0: field. One huge factor is Noah's Flood. Yeah, uh, it, it's, it's the key to understanding the age of the Earth. The flood buried massive amounts of carbon. After the flood, C-14 would have been produced faster than C-12, altering the post-flood C-12 C-14 ratio in the atmosphere, and, and thus living things after the flood. That means living things that lived then would date older than they really are. Hmm. It's been suggested that fossils and, and archaeological artifacts dated like 35 to 45,000 years old should be recalibrated to the biblical date for the flood. Now, here's the best part. Because C14
1: decays so quickly, there shouldn't be anything left after millions of years. Of course. Yet, C14 has been found in dinosaur fossils, coal, and even diamonds. (laughs) Clear
0: evidence that these things are not millions of years old. Yeah, carbon dating doesn't work for rocks that are supposed to be millions of years old. So, evolutionists use other radiometric dating methods involving radioactive isotopes with a much longer decay time, uh, a longer half life. Any scientific
1: method used to estimate the age of the earth requires making assumptions, and that includes radiometric dating. To illustrate the assumptions, let's imagine something simpler. Suppose you walk into a room and see a flask with 300 milliliters of water in it sitting under a dripping tap. If the tap is dripping at 50 milliliters per hour, how long has the water been dripping into the flask? We don't know without making assumptions. Yeah. It yeah. would be 6 hours, assuming the flask was empty when it was put under the tap, that the tap had been drifting at a constant rate the whole time, and that the flask had, been, had not been moved or tipped over. If we don't know those things, we can't be sure how long the water has been dripping into that flask.
0: Yeah, And it's the same for radiometric dating. We have to assume we know the amount of each isotope present when the rock cooled, and we don't. Mm-hmm. We have to assume that the decay rate has been constant, and and there are processes that can affect decay rates, and we have to assume that nothing has been added or taken away from either isotope. Bottom line is, dating methods don't work because we can't be sure if the calculated date is accurate. Yikes. You know, there's a simple way to
1: check if it works. Just test a rock of known age and see if the dating method gets the right age. That should do it. Now, This has been done many times. In 1992, samples of the lava dome that formed at Mount St. Helens in the early 80s were tested by two reputable labs. Results came back at between 340,000
0: to 2.8 million years for rocks that were no more than 10 years old. <laughs> so, that's a fail. Also using isotopes with different decay rates from the same rock should yield the same, the same result, the same date, right? But when basalt from Grand Canyon was tested using four different isotopes, each one gave a different age. You may have <laughs> noticed a range of dates for each sample. This is not unusual. So how do we
1: know which date, if any, is the right one? We don't.
0: We don't. Yeah, Most scientific methods of estimating the age of the earth give dates far younger than the popular 4.6 billion years. So no wonder evolutionists like radiometric dating and downplay Mm -hmm. those other methods. A more reliable method is to read God's word, a historical
1: account of the history of the universe which includes a global flood which would have drastically
0: affected various processes Possibly even decay rates. Yeah. Before we wrap up, we'll tackle what is perceived to be a huge problem for a recent creation. Now, Here's one that's a little bit different. It's a challenge raised against a recent creation. A question we often hear is, how can we see light from distant galaxies in a young universe? Some galaxies are billions of light-years away. A light-year is the distance that light travels at 300,000 kilometers per second for a year. That's a long way. It is. If we assume that there haven't been large-scale changes to the universe since creation, the light from those galaxies took billions of years to get to earth. Since we can deduce from the Bible that God created everything about 6,000 years ago, how can we see that light? That's the question. I met a man a few years ago who thought that this question was insurmountable. So the Bible must be wrong, and he rejected Christ because of it. And now, When he told me this, he was a Christian because someone had showed him that there are Biblically based models that can answer this challenge. Now, some have suggested God created light
1: in transit, but then that would mean things we see billions of light years away, like a supernova, never actually happened. Yeah. It makes God into some kind of a trickster, giving us illusions instead of reality.
0: Yeah, now there are better explanations, and some use Einstein's theory of general relativity. Oh, no. Now, don't worry, we can summarize without the need to understand all of Einstein's equations. He said that gravity distorts time. Where there's weaker gravity, like at the top of a mountain or on the International Space Station, further away from the center of the earth, time moves faster than where gravity's stronger. Now, take that bizarre but scientifically verified principle to Scripture.
1: The Bible hints that the earth is somewhere near the center of the universe, and that the universe is not infinite.
0: Right. Yeah. About a dozen verses in Scripture indicate that God stretched out the heavens. So before that stretching, and let's say that happened on day 4 when God created the sun, moon and stars, before the stretching everything in the universe was closer than it is now. So there have been large-scale changes to the structure of the universe. What are the relativistic effects of that? Well, if all the matter was closer together and the earth is in there
1: somewhere near the center, then gravity around the earth would be high, while far away from the earth, at the edge of the universe, gravity would be low. And if there's a big difference in gravity, there's a big difference in the rate of w- at which time flows.
0: Yes. So it's possible that while billions of years elapsed at the edge of the universe, only hours ticked by on Earth, allowing enough time for the light from those galaxies to get to Earth. Different clocks in the universe at, at, at one time might have looked something like this. So it's not light moving faster, it's time. Yes, Yeah, that's right. Starlight created on day 4 would have had plenty of time to travel to Earth and be visible to Adam and Eve on day 6. No need for billions of years. Now, we'll see you next week. And remember, Christianity is an evidence-based faith. And science supports Scripture. Both the Creation Magazine Live TV show and this podcast are produced by Creation Ministries International, a global think-tank organization dedicated to disseminating the huge amount of scientific evidence for the accuracy of the biblical account of the origin of our universe. If you'd like to donate to keep this information coming, go to creation.com slash donate.